Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Burkelhammer. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming Austin Lefave. Hey Austin, what's up, man? Hey Keith, not not doing much here. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. For so for those folks that don't know uh, Austin, he is currently the director of residential and commercial accounts at Tenji Aquarium Design and Build based in Cormel, California. Tenji specializes in custom aquatic systems for public aquariums, residential, and commercial clients. Prior to joining Tenji, Austin founded and owned Aquabox. He has been in the aquarium industry since 2002, is known for building immaculate aquarium systems, and is recognized throughout the industry for his knowledge and understanding of marine fish breeding care and quarantine practices. And we'll, we'll talk about some of that stuff. Austin has been published in Reefs Magazine, Reefs.com, and Reef Edition Magazine. And he has presented at MACNA, the Mich Michigan Coral Expo, and at a Manhattan Reef Swap. So, Austin, man, welcome to the show. We got, uh, I think we got a lot to talk about here. Really psyched to have you on as a guest. I um, want to thank the folks for tuning in. I see Battle OCRs here, Braveheart Reefer 525. Um, Scotty Damron um, made a comment here, and I think we should uh, certainly uh, call out the comment here, is, is um, basically saying that we should take a minute and remember and keep the fingers crossed for our fellow reef keepers in Texas with all the uh, power outages and the cold weather that's been thrown their way. So hopefully they'll uh, be able to uh, weather the uh, the past storm and the one coming up, I guess is, uh, right? There's another one coming down the pike that that's going to be hitting everybody. So craziness, craziness. So uh, it really Austin, how's it going for you? How, how are you uh, dealing with all the, uh, the COVID stuff? We're doing well. Um, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Keith. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to any hobbyist, public aquarist, uh, zoological society, you name it. Um, it's why we do what we do. Um, COVID's been interesting, uh, as it has for everyone and in every industry. Oh, before I forget, um, if people are noticing something funky on my face, I've already mentioned it to Keith, I got in a fight with some poison oak uh, the other day, and um, I'm just kind of recovering for it. So I didn't get in a bar fight. Uh, I think I actually got some poison oak off my dog and uh, looked pretty funky. I got a nice uh, injection the other day from the doctor. I'm feeling much better now. But um, COVID's been interesting. It's uh, The whole industry um, is actually doing quite well, uh, which is fantastic to see. Um, I was not alone shaking in my boots when this thing first came down the pipeline. Um, we had no idea how it was going to affect the industry as a whole, how it was going to affect the, the supply chains. Um, do people want us coming in their house, in their uh, place of business? Uh, we do some doctor's offices, a couple hospitals, things of that nature. Um, so it was really nerve-wracking. Um, we wound up getting through it quite well. Um, Tenji is essentially three, um, not separate businesses, but we have three main departments. We have a design department, we have a build department, and we have a maintenance department. Um, for the most part, we all kind of interchangeably work in all three. Um, and the design department was quite busy. The build department came to a screeching halt during COVID mm -hmm. and maintenance. We just tried to keep going as much as we could. The build department came to a screeching halt because we do international work. So we design and build aquarium and pond systems uh, worldwide. We try to stay nationwide. Uh, it's easier, frankly, uh, more enjoyable generally. Um, but obviously in the early days, we weren't hopping on too many planes, um, and nobody wanted us in their buildings, which is understandable. So 
I was on a deployment in Southern California with a coworker eating dinner um, and looked up and saw that the NBA canceled their season. Mm. Uh, this mm. was early March in 2020, I believe. And uh, my coworker and I looked at each other and we said, oh, this is this, this is going to be this, real. This is going to be big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were actually doing work at a high school down there with a phenomenal marine biology lab. And that evening, I called the director of the marine biology lab and said, do you want us in there? Can we come back in? What's going on? And it was just too early to uh, really set any initial protocols. So we finished the project. We only had a couple more days on site. We came back. Then we didn't travel from early March until I believe it was like mid-June was our first deployment, um, which did require a plane trip, which was a little nerve-wracking. But we just followed the CDC protocols. Um, we are an essential business. With our, uh, We fall under three different categories. Um, so we printed all of that off, and we contacted everyone along the way and contacted TSA and you know did everything we could, including wearing masks and sanitizing religiously. And our first couple of plane rides, we probably looked like uh, we were wearing hazmat suits um, <laughs> because, you know, we didn't know uh, how to take it. Uh, my wife is a nurse and we're hearing all of these things from from her side of the world about what to do, what not to do. Um, and, and we've slowly but surely gotten back on the road. Um, I think I've been on 16 flights um, through the pandemic and um, I've seen everything from Four people on an, on a massive airplane. Um, me and a coworker were two of those four, mm. um, and and I've unfortunately been crammed in like anchovies a couple times. Um, just depends where you're at. Depends on the flight and the airline. Um, but we are a small business, and uh, just like any small business, we need to keep things moving in some form or fashion. So, assuming that we're putting our best foot forward and following the best protocols, um, we've been able to get some really important work done and some really cool projects done. Um, so uh, glad to see things are starting to uh, look a little better, a little light at the end of the tunnel. Um, now our major issues is actually sourcing equipment. Um, there's some major delays with equipment now starting and has been ongoing, I guess, for a few months. Um, animals seem to be coming through a little bit more now, but uh, it's been interesting. I'm, I'm just glad to hear that everything down from your Petco and mom and pop fish stores um, up to people like us and, and bigger than us are, uh, are still doing well in this industry. It's really, really good to see. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Things certainly got busier, I think, for everybody involved on the business side because um, people just have more time to be with their tanks, which, uh, you know, I think all the hobby-based businesses out there are uh, doing okay in that regard. And, and um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to predict what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, who would have thought that a pandemic would actually, you know, cause uh, reef keeping to be, you know, re- reef keepers to be, um, you know, kind of like up in the game there in terms of paying attention to the tank. And, and, and um, I don't want to say buying stuff, but uh, I think people are, um, you know, when you're just sitting there and more focused on something, then perhaps the, uh, the wallet does open up a little bit more. I don't know. But uh, it depends on the individual, I guess. It, it's possibly the best time to have an aquarium uh, in our lives. <laughs> Semi-justifiable to keep us sane and keep us doing things at our home, um, you know, when we're kind of forced to be there. Um, I have not had an aquarium in my home for about three years. Um, I live close to our office, which we'll talk about here in a few. Um, we have about six aquariums there and then three quarantine systems, so there's always something to do there. When the pandemic hit, um, I set up a little indoor pond mm. and uh, 
uh, source some imported Japanese fancy goldfish um, just to keep me busy and occupied. So um, not so much the reef life that uh, I love so much, but we have two fantastic reef tanks at the office. So um, you better believe we were in there uh, making some some nice changes to that early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. No, you're a lucky guy. So awesome. Let's let's um, before we get into Tenji, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about how you know you got into the uh, to the hobby of the business and and kind of like your journey to uh, where you're at now at Tenji. Sure, sure. Um, when I'm talking to younger folks or older folks interested in, in, in interested in entering this industry. I kind of preface it with, I took the dirt road, let me tell you the paved road. Um, I started out pretty young, um, just like a lot of us. I had aquariums all my life growing up. Uh, I had newts, I had betas, I had goldfish, I had some cichlid tanks. Um, learned early on under my father's guidance not to completely clean aquariums with bleach while removing your fish into a small bucket. Um, you know, that doesn't bode well for our beneficial bacteria. Um, in high school, I started my first job at a local fish store. Um, I believe I was 16. And that's where things kind of got serious, shall we say. And um, I was building ponds with them. We were doing custom installations. Um, he, the owner of that store was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was called Aquatech Engineers. His name is Larry. He taught me an unbelievable amount of uh, information really, really young. Um, he worked with Pablo Taput early on to import some of the first cichlids into the U.S. in the 70s, I believe. Um, Pablo is known uh, better now. He owns New Life Spectrum Foods, um, yep. and he wrote some really phenomenal books on cichlids. Um, had the pleasure of meeting Pablo a couple times at shows. So I had a pretty heavy uh, entrance into the field really young and um, was able to stretch my wings under Larry, which was great. Um, from there, I worked with them for quite some time and um, got really interested in to go to some biology programs at uh, University of Michigan or Michigan State, set in on a couple of them, and the younger version of me was really bored. Um, and I got offered um, a position at uh, the Tropicorium in Romulus, Michigan, um, which was kind of a paid understudy, if you will. Um, learned a tremendous amount working with uh, Dick Perrin and his son Ray there. Mm. Um, we bred sharks, uh, stingrays, uh, a tremendous amount of corals, um, and all of the coral flats were in a greenhouse, actually, um, which even in Michigan, we had to shade quite a bit. It was pretty mm. wild. We would torch corals um, under uh, greenhouse roofs in, in Michigan. Um, and then from there, I met a lot of various industry folks. Um, my family was always super supportive of me in this industry, but also saw some hurdles that were upcoming. So uh, I, I joined an engineering company for about two years, three years, something like that. Um, we did liquid level tank management systems. So a lot of ballast tanks on ships and uh, still dealing with measuring liquids in some form or fashion. Um, it was a fantastic career opportunity. I was bored to tears. Mm. Um, so after a couple years there, I took a massive pay cut and jumped back into the aquatics industry. Um, and never looked back. Um, so all told, and, and during that engineering stint, I was still doing some writing, um, helping out my buddies at Cherry Corals uh, in Michigan there with some shows and whatnot, and uh, met a lot of phenomenal people and kind of found uh, a couple paths that I decided to take. Um, when I re-entered the industry, I launched my first business, um, and that turned into launching a second business, and then eventually both of those the local one was sold and the, the national one was kind of brought under the umbrella of Tenji. Um, and I moved out 
to join these guys in Monterey three and a half years ago, roughly. I want to say November of 2017. Um, these guys, in my eyes, had kind of always been uh, where I wanted to, to, I wanted to compete with them. I wanted to be on their level, if you will. Tenji was born in the public aquarium industry. Um, it was started by three curators of the Monterey Bay Aquarium here in Monterey. Um, one of their first jobs was to install every freestanding exhibit at the Steinhardt Aquarium in San Francisco. Um, they did a phenomenal job with those. Those are still uh, up and running today. Um, that was in the early 2000s. Um, we've been around, Tenji's been around for 21 years now. Um, and my business at the time was kind of born into the residential and commercial sector. So we did a lot of installs in homes, a lot of installs in uh, lawyers, offices, doctors, dentists, that kind of thing. A um, couple mall jobs. And then we did start getting calls for some public aquarium type jobs. They were small, um, but I was over the moon to be getting those calls. Um, I met the Tenji guys at a show in Boston um, and we really hit it off. Um, and at that point, we didn't talk too much about joining forces, but the aura was in the air, if you will. Then they saw me speak at a Macna. We had dinner with them. Um, I ran to the restroom during dinner and one of the co-owners of Tenji was convincing my wife that Monterey is a beautiful place to live. <laughs> um, so, uh, to make a long story short, pretty quickly thereafter, I came to visit them, see what they were about. And then we packed uh, our little family, which is two dogs and my wife. Um, and we moved 2,600 miles west um, and haven't looked back. Um, so super excited to be here. We have um, arguably the most talented individuals in this industry I've ever worked with, from fabrication to design um, to build. And uh, it's, it's just a really wonderful place to, to be. Um, I've learned significantly more in the first year I was with Tenji than I would have learned in five, ten years on my own. Um, so it's, it's a great place to be, and, and so far they still like me being here. Uh, so we're all, uh, we're all very happy um, with what we have going on, and we've got some really cool projects in the works, um, and we've done some really cool projects uh, since I've been here, and we'll look at some of those, and then we'll look at some projects that they did before I joined. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, actually rolling the, uh, the video now as you're talking about it. Oh, great, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Just that video starts, Keith, as we discussed, kind of our showroom. We did a grand opening um, three-ish years ago in February. So you'll see some of our tanks in the showroom, and then it kind of starts moving into um, some other builds that we've done. I mean, it, it's just amazing. In, in terms of the um, percentage of, you know, public aquarium type of installs versus retail slash um, residential, what, um, what's the kind of breakdown in terms of the you know, the types of jobs that you guys typically do. So with Tenji being born in the public aquarium industry, um, that's kind of been their focus for a long time. And the phone started ringing for some residential and commercial jobs. Um, me coming on was really a big push to get more into that sector. Um, and then I quickly uh, fell in love with the public aquarium sector as well. So I jumped in, in there head first. Um, Pre-pandemic, uh, as we discussed, Keith, the we were probably 75% public aquarium science center to 25% residential and commercial. Um, that's a rough estimate. It depends on the size of the project, depends on the time of year, depends what we have going on. It's a, probably a pretty good average. 
Um, Post-pandemic, we've seen um, the public aquarium and science sector slow down a little bit. Um, no one's been selling tickets since March of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, it's time to consolidate funds. It's time to keep the animals going and see where this thing's going to take us. Uh, is that are we ever going to see 50,000 people a year in public aquariums again? Um, I certainly hope so. I certainly think so, honestly, but uh, we just don't know. Um, so the residential sector picked up considerably uh, when the pandemic stopped. Um, it didn't flip flop to 75, 25 necessarily, but probably more like 50, 50. Um, and the thing to mention there is that some of our public aquarium jobs or even big residential jobs from the day that you call or email us to the day we finish building it um, could be two to four years. Mm. Um, we're dealing with your contractors, your architects, your general contractors. Um, there's a tremendous amount of back and forth work that goes into there. Um, as you will see, a lot of our equipment is uh, custom built, so that takes time, three or four months. Um, and there might be two years of design uh, that happens to make sure that we're following all the local codes make sure the floor is supported, make sure the room can handle the humidity that's going to come at you, um, and of course, make sure that we can heat, cool, and provide power for everything necessary. Um, so, you know, we can go install a 120-gallon in someone's living room in, in a couple weeks, like most places could, um, but when we're talking about in-wall systems that are built into the infrastructure of a building, it takes considerably longer. So when the pandemic started, we had some of those two-plus-year uh, jobs already in the pipeline, um, which was really, really great business-wise for keeping us going, keeping our design sector going. Um, and now it's when we're starting to get our build team back out on the road to try and pull some of these things off. No, it's it's really um, it's really impressive. I um, I stopped rolling the um, the the, uh, the clip there, but um, you know, in in terms of the the, the residential jobs, I, I was um, you know curious about kind of digging a little bit deeper into that stuff since we've got folks, you know, on, on the hobby side that are tuning in. I think so. Maybe maybe we do have some public aquarium folks that are uh, tuning in because you guys put the word out about, about you being on here. I don't know. But, uh, but <laughs> you know, it's, so, I, you know, I want to dig in a little bit in terms of the residential side. But uh, mm -hmm. what would you say is the most common size aquarium system that you guys do for a customer on the residential side? It's an excellent question, um, and I hinted earlier to you, Keith. Uh, we we do we'll do a, a a beta tank. We'll do a one gallon tank or smaller. I think we have actually a one gallon tank in our showroom, um, and then about three up to about three hundred thousand gallons is our comfort zone. Um, that, as a hobbyist perspective, is a massive tank. Um, when you get into public aquariums, you know, I mean, there's some million gallon tanks out there now. Um, so that's kind of, a, a, just a different sector, a different arena, if you will. We have partners we work with if that kind of thing falls under, um, uh, our, our scope at any point. Um, and you wind up dealing with a lot more structural load work than actually aquarium work to, to pull those off. As far as residential is concerned, I would say probably about 300 gallons is our average size. Um, Historically, um, you know, we've certainly done some much bigger than that. And then lately we've seen a lot more 150-ish uh, gallon builds coming through. Um, and I think personally that that is um, due to the pandemic. Um, some people that had been maybe mildly interested in aquariums, excuse me, but never took the plunge, um, can't travel. Now it's time to get into something cool. Um, and if you talk to me about a, a good size tank, that's going to be fairly straightforward to maintain and leave a lot of room for uh, growth. 
Uh, 120 to 150 is a fantastic size. Um, I've also got nothing against 50 to 75 gallon tanks, um, but we do find a lot of people kind of falling in that four by two by two foot range tank um, is kind of the standard, I would say. Do you, Which growing up, that's a heck of a lot bigger than it was growing up. You know, I mean, 30 to 50 gallons was a, a good size reef tank for a while. Then. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, up to 150 gallons is a decent sized tank. Do you guys find that um, you were doing mostly um, recommending to, to your clients that they get a custom built aquarium or are you, you know, also um, recommending certain, uh, I don't know what you would call a mass produced manufactured uh, based um, aquariums. Is it a mix? Or is it majority more custom versus the, uh, the mass produced tanks? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And something that um, we've kind of struggled to answer a few times, mainly being we don't have um, a, a local glass tank builder here, which I grew up with in my businesses in Michigan, um, a great builder called Aquatic America. He would build tanks for us up to about 180 gallons. Um, and, and he would build them with uh, thicker glass, uh, better quality trim and high quality silicone than you could find. Um, I won't throw any names out there, but in your mass produced stuff, you can find at Petco Pet Supplies Plus. Um, we don't have that here. We do have a great acrylic guy. Um, and so for the most part, all of our, all the systems that we're installing, uh, are going to be custom. Um, we do get into a couple of all in one type pre-built things. Uh, my main concern is longevity of the system. Um, as we discussed a couple days ago, if, if I can't be pretty certain that you're going to want this for 10 plus years, um, we're not the business to talk to. Um, and that's honestly going to come a lot down to, to price point and, and lead time. Um, you know, I, I mean, we're all living in a, Amazon two-day delivery age, and so am I, don't get me wrong. Um, but if you want something that's going to last the, the test of time, uh, it's just going to take a little bit longer and it's going to cost a little bit more. Um, you know, I don't like installing any aquariums that are less than half inch thick glass. Um, you know, if you knock that accidentally with something a little bit too hard, it doesn't take much um, to get a, a good crack in there. And then all of a sudden we have an emergency at 2 a.m. on a Sunday or, or whatever it is. So we always overbuild everything a little bit. Um, I catch some flack from that from time to time, but rarely to never will you hear of a, a, a one of our clients having an issue with a with a tank, um, and and it's based on dealing with really high quality builders. Um, we use several of them nationwide. Our go tos are generally MRC Planet Aquariums and Cal Aquaria. Um, that's not to throw shade at anyone else. Um, we've I've worked with most every aquarium builder. Um, I've seen some fantastic aquarium builders. Uh, quality go down quite a bit over the years based on owner changes, managerial changes, what have you. And I've seen the opposite. I've seen manufacturers that maybe I wouldn't have considered five years ago where um, we're talking to them a lot now. Um, so it's it's kind of relative to what, what people are looking for. But for the most part, we're going to overbuild the systems so that um, the way we build tanks, you know, we're, we're looking at 20 plus years before you're going to have any issues with um, um, silicone or acrylic seams, um, assuming it's, it's kept up with and cared for appropriately. So in, in terms of materials for a, um, for a glass tank, you know, I guess mm -hmm. there's different, um, qualities of glass that can be used and, and, um, a tank builder that I use in, in New Jersey, coast to coast custom aquariums, you know, sure. has, um, you know, mentioned to me that there's different qualities of glass and that you've got to be, um, you know, careful of certain custom tank builders that could use cheap like foreign glass is that is that an issue that you guys really um you know in terms of the tank builders that you work with make sure that 
they're not, uh, you know, scrimping on any of the materials that are being used for that uh, aquarium? For sure, for sure. Um, we really vet any of our vendors um, that are building custom equipment kind of kind of to the max. Um, we know what kind of silicone they're using. Um, we can ask for the batch of silicone they're using in case we hear through the grapevine that something's gone wrong. We do rely on them pretty heavily, you know, once we do a little bit of research. Um, it's a it's a trust game, um, you know, and, and we're going to keep working with you if we can trust you and you're putting out a high-quality product. But, um, yeah, there's there's a big difference between um, some Chinese imported glass, shall we say, and not to hate on Chinese glass at all. There's some good stuff that comes out of there. Most of it's a little subpar. Um, the common term we're seeing a lot now for custom tank builders is they're using automotive-grade glass. Mm. Um, of our manufacturers is sourcing the same glass that they use in Maserati windshields. Um, so if it can take an impact on a highway to a Maserati windshield, it's probably going to take your kid's Hot Wheel thrown <laughs> at the tank. Um, it's going to take your drunk neighbor running into it. Like there's a lot of things that, you know, it's it's going to put up with where, yeah, if we're looking for the bottom line um, cost wise, um, you, you get what you pay for. Couldn't hold more true than in the saltwater aquarium industry. Um, and that goes on the equipment side too. I come from an era where five years for a pump is a kind of minimum expected run. Now we're seeing one and two year warranties on things. It makes me sick to my stomach. I mean, we're talking about bringing in animals from the wild more often than not, um, keeping them in a glass or acrylic box. And you're going to put a life support system on there that has a one year warranty. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, we're at a point in this industry where we can easily keep our animals living for longer than they ever could in the wild. Um, we can completely eradicate predation. We can deal with ailments. We can build a home that's suited to them. Um, if that's not your goal, I think you're in the wrong hobby. Um, I hate to be blunt, but I've just been doing it a long time. And there's a there's a good way to do it. And and don't get me wrong, it doesn't have to be expensive. Um, one of the things I talk about in in one of my Magna talks was that there's a big difference between cheap and affordable. Um, and, and cheap does no one any good. And you're going to bang your head against the wall, trying to keep cheap equipment running where you could go for affordable equipment. You know, not everything has to be top of the line, abyss or ecotech, what have you. Um, and, and you can still get by. Um, but the higher quality equipment you're using, the more you can focus on your animals, um, and just do prophylactic maintenance on your equipment, not scramble when you have your main pump die. Um, you can get away with incorporating, you know, maybe lower quality stuff if you have redundant systems. So two return pumps, maybe um, things of that nature. There's different things you can do. Um, but I do think it's super important to to keep our morals held high. And, and, you know, our goal should be to let these animals die of natural causes at someday um, way, way down the line. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you. I, I definitely believe in investing in quality type of equipment. You know, it uh, it might hurt at the um for the initial investment in terms of that um you know really being quite expensive but over you know if you're in it for the long haul it makes complete sense versus uh you know reinvesting uh, every couple of years on, on stuff that uh, is just breaking down but also maintenance is important even with the good stuff in terms of the high quality equipment if you don't maintain it then uh you're you're gonna you know chances are you're gonna have a failure as well so yeah, I've I've had some pretty interesting calls with people over the years. It's like, well, this costs this much. You, you know, you shouldn't have to do anything. No, uh, <laughs> it's going to be easier to maintain. It's probably higher quality material, so it'll last longer when you maintain it. Um, I, I mean, 
nowadays you can pretty much remove a pump, a skimmer body, what have you, put it in a bucket with citric acid powder or vinegar, muriatic acid, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, we really like citric acid for what it's worth. Use your gloves, eye protection, and it just works really fast. It's, it's easy on the equipment. It's easy on the pumps. Um, you can get it from bulk resupply. Some pump manufacturers rebrand it now. But anyways, um, throw it in there, run it at a low speed for a few minutes, put it back into, in, in, into use. Um, you know, it, we're kind of out of the era where we need to be replacing uh, seals all the time on pumps, um, that type of work. Um, it's, it's easy. So if we're doing it, we do it for our maintenance clients on a quarterly schedule. So every three months, um, we're in there cleaning pumps, even if they're working perfectly, um, put them back into place. And I mean, these things just keep running, you know, it's, it's pretty great. So should I be dumping out my, uh, vinegar and, and picking up some of the uh, citric acid? Do you think that's easier on the, uh, parts? I think citric acid works faster than vinegar. Um, vinegar is phenomenal and I'll throw some not throw caution to the wind here. I'll throw a cautionary tale out there. Be careful when you're using anything besides vinegar. Even vinegar in your eyes can hurt. Um, citric acid will will really hurt and uh, can do some funky things to your skin. Uh, muriatic, muriatic acid is a whole nother level. Be really, really careful with muriatic acid. Um, just, you know, the, the big long gloves, you can get them on Amazon for pond work, I think they're called. They're like 15 bucks. Um, I think Tunzi sells some. A couple aquarium companies sell them, but use those. And Citric acid just works faster, um, and it's much safer than muriatic acid, um, and there's no fumes uh, for the most part like muriatic acid. So we can use it in a small life support room if necessary, um, where muriatic acid you, get, you shouldn't use in a small room. And vinegar, for us on the road, um, might be quadruple the length of time we're supposed to be on site. Um, so for your home hobbyist, if you have the time to soak something overnight and whatnot, by all means, uh, vinegar works great. Um, if you want it to go a little bit faster or you only have one pump, you need to get right back into use. That citric acid is really, really fantastic stuff. Can can vinegar cause any harm? I mean, I thought I've um, read some um, anecdotal things where people have been using vinegar, even like a half um, mix of vinegar and, and hot water and have done some harm to um, pumps. Is that something that you have to be worried about? I mean, is there a certain time limit you should be thinking about in terms of when you're using vinegar versus citric acid? It's a really great question. Unfortunately, I don't have a definitive answer for you. Um, we tend to resort to whatever the pump manufacturer is specifying. I have seen some pump manufacturers say don't use vinegar on a product. Mm. I've personally never ran into an issue with it, and I've used it for most of my aquari aquarist life, um, including we still have some at the office. We find um, you know, a little light amount of Coraline or something on a client's pump, maybe we'll just throw it in vinegar overnight. If they have, they generally have a backup on site we'll use. Um, and, and there's no issues with that. Um, with the citric acid or muriatic acid, we generally don't want to be leaving things overnight yeah. um, just in case it starts to get a little too aggressive, um, because it can get to, uh, eating away some other materials. Um, so vinegar is still a fantastic option, but if you're finding that vinegar isn't doing uh, enough, or you still have to do a, a tremendous amount of scrubbing after you're done with that, um, look into the citric acid route. It's it's good stuff. Um, just make sure you're using your eye and, and hand protection. Yeah, no, I essentially soak uh, my stuff in vinegar for 30 minutes is pretty much what I'll do is just like let it sit for 30 minutes and then, um, you know, clean what I need to clean with the brush and, and, and uh, you know, it does a pretty good job. So I'm really, I've been, yeah, I've been using it for 25 plus years myself and can't recall ever having an issue, but I've seen a lot of uh, chatter about the citric acid stuff. So made me wonder. Yeah. 
You know, I, I think it's twofold and maybe we'll get into it more. Um, marketing for this industry as far as equipment is better than ever. Um, you know, I talk to so many Aquarists now, new Aquarists who come in and they're just like, before they decide what animals they want to keep, they already know all of their controller equipment they're using. They know what kind of light they want to use. They know all this other stuff. And I say, whoa, really none of that matters until you know what you want to keep. And so if we get a, a new client that's discussing with us, my first question is, what do you want to keep? Um, what do you have to have? What made you say, I want an aquarium. This is why I want it. And then we design everything around there. So I think some of the citric acid stuff we're seeing now is it's easy to package, resell, uh, rebrand. Um, and it does work better than vinegar. So I, I think the word's kind of getting out about it. Um, it's been around forever. Um, it was just always a little bit more, uh, we were borrowing from other industries, if you will, versus seeing it touted for aquarium use. Right. Um, but yeah, it's good stuff for sure. Um, so, all right, we were just talking about tanks before. Let's talk about tank stands. What material do you guys prefer your customers use in terms of a tank stand for like, I don't know, aquarium between 100 and 240 uh, gallons, if you had to make a recommendation? I mean, there's aluminum, there's steel, there's hybrid in terms of, um, you know, wood on top of uh, skinned on top of uh, steel, and I guess aluminum. What, what do you guys like in terms of, I guess, um, integrity of the stand? And, and I guess the look in terms of the material depends on the individual, right? 100%. Um, something we're really getting into uh, as of late is a FRP tube stand. So fiberglass, reinforced plastic, or just fiberglass tube. Uh, it looks a lot like a metal stand. Um, but it's actually fiberglass. So with a metal stand, um, the bottom grade metal we'll use is 304 stainless. Sometimes we're using 316 stainless. Um, obviously there's cost involved in that. And then it gets powder coated. Um, powder coating is a phenomenal material that if it's held up, um, you know, it'll technically last forever. Um, rarely to never does it hold up long term or not get some kind of tiny crack in it that needs a little attention. We're talking 10 plus years down the road, don't get me wrong. Um, but fiberglass, you don't have to do anything to. Mm. You could literally let salt water drip down it all day long. Um, and we've seen that happen based on various things outside of our scope. And, and they look brand new once you clean them up with citric acid or whatever. Um, it's a really cool material. It's very bare bones looking. Um, it's, it's like I said, like a, imagine a steel stand, but, but gray. Um, so it would be skinned over top of that. Um, we have a couple different ways we do that with clients and we get into, um, you know, a small kind of modest home like I'm in where a client just wants kind of the most affordable thing um, that's still going to look nice. And that's where maybe we'll have one of our stand vendors that'll offer five different models of a wooden stand. We'll offer those to them. And they're a phenomenal option if you're paying attention and, and you're keeping things clean and neat and not letting things get wet. Um, you know, some of these, uh, marine grain plywood stands are, they're really great. Um, with that said, there's still wood. Uh, so you do have to mop up your spills. You do have to be careful. So if we can get them into a fiberglass stand and then have someone skin it with wood or acrylic or some other material that they're looking at, um, it's just going to last that much longer. And we're never going to have that fear. Caveat there is cost. Yeah, I was going to say. Because you're kind of buying two stands. I mean, your fiberglass stand compared to a, a marine grade plywood stand is probably going to cost about the same. Then you have to have a carpenter come in and skin the stand, which is probably going to cost about the same. So right. pulling this out of thin air, $1,000 for a wood stand, $1,000 for your fiberglass stand, 
plus a thousand dollars to put your wood on that fiberglass stand. Um, if it's an in-wall build, you don't have to skin it. You know, we're cutting a hole in the wall and uh, drywall finishers are coming in and, and putting a ring around that. So there's no worries. You can let it look a little bit more bare bones. Quarantine systems in the back of a public aquarium or science center, fiberglass stands all the way, or steel. Um, we still do use a lot of steel for various reasons. And, and one of the reasons is cost. Um, 304 stainless powder coated stand, we can generally do more affordable than we can do a fiberglass stand. Um, we're looking into other alternatives for that, um, but it's hard to beat that fiberglass stuff. So we're seeing how that comes about. Um, in a big custom home where someone has super fancy woodwork throughout, um, we do a fair amount of, of, of those types of installations. Um, we'll work with the clients, woodworkers or contractors or builders, whoever they've been doing, so they can literally bring the same type of look from their kitchen or entertainment unit right onto their aquarium. Um, we do pass all of that work off, but we work with them really early on and we say, hey, what kind of mounting tabs do you want? What kind of uh, attachment points are you looking for? What are you going to attach with? And we'll have the fiberglass or steel stand built to those specs so that the finishing carpenters can come in uh, and button up everything and make it just look seamless. Um, I can't believe some of the work we're seeing some of these guys come out with. We're doing one locally here that they haven't quite skinned yet, but there's a local woodworker who's done everything. And they're taking the time to make the grain on the cabinetry on the bottom literally match the canopy on the top. Wow. So if you squash the aquarium out of there, the grain is exactly the same piece of wood. Mm. Wow. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's well above my head with anything I could ever imagine seeing done or afford or what have you. Um, but it's beautiful work. So we're really excited to share that one. That was the, a cylinder tank we shared uh, a little while back um, in Carmel. So we really leave it up to the client. And if price point is the number one thing that we're looking for, um, up to about 240 gallons, we're certainly going to be looking at a marine grade plywood stand um, because they will stand the test of time, uh, assuming it's made by someone who knows what they're doing. And you have to be careful with warranty stuff on the tank itself. You know, if the tank manufacturer offers a warranty, more often than not, they're going to want it on a stand that they're selling. Right. Some right. of that is business, right? And you can't fault them for that. But the other side of it is they know that they're built to a certain spec. And if hobbyist Joe is building his own stand, they don't know what the hell spec that's built to, if to any spec. Um, and you know, how level and even the top of your stand is, is unbelievably important to the longevity of the system. Um, you know, there are certain nuances that come into play there that we can get around, you know, if it's an eighth of an inch, quarter of an inch, sometimes you can get away with that depending on the quality of the stand. If it's a super strong stand, you're going to be fine. Um, but if you're looking at something that's pressed wood, um, or a lower grade plywood, or doesn't have enough support across the bottom or in the verticals, that thing is going to sag over time. Mm. Um, if we're installing it on carpet, um, you have to be really careful installing things on carpet because that's going to flex and move over time. Um, so we always recommend don't install it on carpet. Yeah, but there are I ways wouldn't. To, <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. There are ways to kind of get around that. And if anybody watching is curious, uh, kind of the, the step is it, take a sheet of three-quarter inch plywood or so and cut it out to the bottom of your stand, set your stand on there. And then it's going to compress, but it's generally going to compress evenly. Um, and that's kind of the best way to get around that. The, the next step is cut out the carpet and padding underneath your tank. Let it sit on the, right. the, the subfloor. Right. Um, you know, that's the really ideal path. But then you wind up with your doors dragging on carpet and 
you open up a can of worms. Your best bet is not to put it on carpet. Just take um, the also, carpet out of the room and tile and then have the tank right on the uh, the tile or whatnot. That I would assume be a lot uh, easier, more practical solution. Especially when you spill. Spousal yeah. approval is huge. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If you're constantly having a fan out there because you're spilling on your carpet, uh, we wish you luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Austin, uh, Reefkeeper has a question for you. He says, um, or she, I think it's a he, Reefkeeper. Sorry. Um, I want to skin my 96 by 30 stand. Um, can you ask Austin if a PVC material or something else is better than wood? Yeah. Um, PVC is a great material. We use it for all kinds of weird stuff that I never would have imagined. Um, because you can get PVC in sheet in various thicknesses, um, you can get it in a lot of colors now. As far as using it for a skin stand, I've seen it done a few times and it works well. Um, it's pretty easy to work with. The one thing that generally surprises people is it's a lot heavier than you'd think. Um, there's a couple kinds of PVC sheet. One is a super dense PVC. Um, that's generally what we're using for structural integrity. We're never really using it for you know, a, a big thick shelf, if you will. There's going to be better opportunities for uh, steel or, or your fiberglass doing that. Um, but it, it would be a, a good material to use. I think you would just want to search around and make sure it's the look that you're, you're going for. Um, I love it personally. I think it's fantastic. You'll see in a lot of our builds, we're using uh, PVC sumps, um, which is a super dense PVC sheet material um that is uh cut to size and seemed like uh not like but similar to how acrylic is seamed um it's very strong it's very durable it's easy to buff easy to clean it's gonna last forever um you just want to watch the weight especially if you're using it on doors you'll want to use hinges that are going to tolerate that weight um things of that nature but you can't go wrong with pvc and saltwater aquariums because it can't degrade it lasts forever right. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal option if you're cool with the look, um, because again, it looks pretty industrial. So we have another question from uh, Three Two One Reefer: um, Does Tenji glue the fiberglass stand together? Um, the fiberglass stands that we use are done in two ways. One of them is uh, bolted together. Um, it's kind of like an I-beam type structure, and we're using uh, FRP grading on the top a lot of times. Um, those things are unbelievably robust. Um, you can literally park a car on top of even small, small versions of those stands. Those are nice because we can flat pack them. So we can break them down into, uh, you know, minimum height, put them on pallets, stack them and ship them. Um, we'll fill the back of, um, big semi trucks with that kind of stuff and then build it on site pretty quickly. The other route is to have glued, um, fittings that are kind of pushed together and whatnot. Um, and we work with a vendor who does those for us at this point. Um, it's a pretty intriguing process that we're interested to learn more about. Um, but we are very supportive of vendors who come up with new methods to doing things. And more often than not, at the end of the day, they can do it more affordably than we can when it comes down to getting the R&D in-house and then paying our guys to do it. Um, so we, we, we like supporting our vendors who come up with this new stuff. Um, so actually, at, at this time, we've never tried gluing our own uh, FRP stands together because we have a phenomenal vendor that we use who, who does it probably better than we could dream of for quite some time. Gotcha. All right. So we have another question. And, and by the way, uh, Reefkeeper is a he, Phil. Sorry about that, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> Good. No. <laughs> Planet, uh, Planet 3D is, wants to know, can you ask Austin to expand on the silicone 
choices and what to do if you see a tank leak? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I have to tread a little lightly here. Um, so Dow Corning is the biggest producer of silicone that is going to exist. We've probably all been privy to seeing various pure silicones at Home Depot, Lowe's type places that specifically say on the back, not for aquarium use. Um, you have to buy kind of the all glass aquarium brand. You have to buy the other brand. We do recommend buying the brands that say for aquarium use. Um, number one, if you ever have an issue with it, animals having an issue or anything, you can res fall back on that. Um, mold inhibitors and things in some of these silicones can be an issue sometimes, sometimes they're not. Um, so we always recommend sticking with something that says for aquarium use, not only for liability purposes, but that's what it's made for. So generally speaking, it's not gonna be much more to get that kind of thing in your hand, especially you're only gonna be using it once. Um, I've personally gone the other route years ago and like built sumps with less than aquariums and had it turn yellow and do all kinds of funky stuff, start releasing. Some of them did weird things in salt water. Some of them did weird things in fresh water. Um, black silicone is super popular now. Um, that's going to be your Dow 795, I believe is the number. It's an RTV silicone. So it's technically structurally sound. That's what that rating means. I've heard rumors that clear silicone is stronger than black silicone. Mm. I've heard these rumors from people I trust more than myself when it comes down to the integrity of silicones. I've installed a lot of black silicone tanks. These are more recent rumors I should add to. I've heard, I've installed a lot of black silicone tanks. Most of my tanks were always black silicone. I never had an issue with it. Um, when we use silicone for certain fittings or we use it for various applications out here outside of putting the tanks together. Um, we're generally using black silicone. Um, I figured I'd share that notion of, of uh, the clear being stronger um, because it's from people that I really trust. And I think we'll be moving into that more long-term after hearing these things. It is anecdotal, but again, it's from people that know more than me about it. Um, so in a nutshell, use an aquarium silicone made for aquariums. Dow 795 black or the like RTV silicone is a great silicone and rumor has it that clear silicone is stronger. Um, part of that is the off gassing periods longer. It's stinkier. Um, something behind that creates a better bond, not the smell itself, but the way that it cures. I'm sorry. I don't have technical information on that. Um, and uh, that's all I can say about that at, at this time. If I have more info on it and it can be released and we have, you know, some sound stuff about it. I'm happy to share it at that point. So uh, what should somebody do if they have a leak? Drain the tank and uh, redo? <laughs> yeah, so leaky tanks are always fun. Um, I guess it's going to depend on the severity of the leak and the location of the leak. Um, we've had a couple instances where 20-plus-year-old aquariums started leaking right at the top trim. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, I've had a couple experiences where newer aquariums started leaking right at the top trim. I'm not too afraid to fix that. Um, we can drain the tanks down. We can have our power heads running. We can submerge some heaters in there, keep the system running, keep the animals going. And by system running, I mean just keep things going in the display tank, maybe do an extra water change, turn off the life support. Um, I'm not too afraid to recommend people trying a fix on that. Um, at Tenji, we don't fix leaky aquariums. If, if it's something that falls under our scope, you know, for some reason, of course, we're going to be on top of that for our clients by all means. But if you call me and say, I have bought a tank from Petco and it's leaking, what can we do? 
I will offer you new aquariums. Um, it's the liability involved. You will, you'll be hard pressed to find a lot of people who will come and do it for you. So it's more of a DIY mm -hmm. thing. It's not necessarily hard. Um, the way that tanks are siliconed is kind of a two to three part process. It's not one bead and you're done. So you lay a bead between the seam, right? And it goes in between the seam. That generally gets pushed out. You let that cure. You cut off the outside. And then you're actually cutting off the inside without piercing through that seam. So at a 90 degree angle, that's your bond for the glass. That's not actually your seam holding the water in. That's kind of what's keeping the glass up together. Then in that 90 degree angle, you run another bead down there once you clean it up. And that basically cures from the glass to the glass and oftentimes won't even cure on that bit of silicone behind it, but it doesn't matter because all the water's pushing against that inner bead. Then some aquarium manufacturers will go to the outside of that corner and put another bead on there that's purely for aesthetics. It's to make it look schmancy. Um, you can use a little tool to, to kind of dress that up as well. So a lot of the you know high-end tanks we're seeing, these really, really nice beads being done, they, they look machined. Um, oftentimes they're, well, they're, they're not machined. They're oftentimes taped to make a nice clean bead. And then a nice tool is used to scrape out the excess or to create that nice finished look behind it. Um, that's kind of the, the science behind a aquarium seams, if you will. And, um, I hear a lot about acrylic versus glass seams too. And the one thing that I can say is a, a good glass tank is not going to be any less, uh, um, sound than a good acrylic tank. I've seen acrylic tanks leak. I've seen glass tanks leak. Um, I don't, I do not even remotely believe that acrylic tanks are going to be, uh, last longer than a silicone glass tank will anymore. I did for a long time. I don't anymore. Hmm, interesting. Um, let's talk about features of aquariums. You know, I've always had certain features in my custom aquariums. I'm pretty much for the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years had custom aquariums and and there's certain things that i like to have on, on those aquariums one is euro bracing you know i like sps dominant tanks so i like a lot of flow in my uh tanks and i know folks out there have rimless uh tanks that are sps dominant tanks but i, I just feel like you know in terms of the flow in that tank that it's it's not practical for me but uh, are there any you know directions that you push folks in in terms of like rimless versus euro bracing do you like the euro bracing because it just adds extra integrity to a tank Sure, sure. Um, I, I will start with something that I talk about a lot, and that's a top on your aquarium. Um, I love rimless tanks as much as the light next guy, possibly more. I think they're gorgeous. I mean, you can get spousal approval from people you never thought you could because all of a sudden now it can be more of a piece of furniture and has that clean, modern look. Um, but I am a firm, firm believer that every aquarium needs a top on it. I look at it like putting a seatbelt on a youngster in, in your car. I mean, it's it's such a simple thing to avoid. We've probably all had fish jump. Hell, some of us have probably had fish jump through a top or get stuck in a top. Um, when fish get spooked, they jump. Um, that's a known thing. Unless we're, I've had a literally 16, 17-inch lionfish launch themselves out of a tank at me um, <laughs> because I was walking around feeding aquariums next to it. And this freaking thing, Whoa. yeah have nightmares about it but you know unless you're keeping seahorses or frogfish chances are your fish are going to jump so uh, i'm not on forums too much anymore but i still see the threads popping up what fish don't jump you know or whatever and it's like they all jump um yeah. everything has the potential to jump and it might be your dog walking past quickly it might be a light flicking on in the background that's unknown it might be a pump starting and stopping there's so many variables that can cause that 
So what I'm getting at is if you are hellbent on a rimless aquarium for not keeping a top, I say don't let that be your reason um, because you still need a top even on a rimless tank. There's some really cool top options out there now for rimless tanks. Um, one of my go-tos, if it's not included when you buy the tank, is uh, Artfully Acrylic or the Clearview Lid guys. Right. Um, I've been working with Adam and that crew for years. Um, we're actually having them look at doing one for a massive aquarium we just built. It was like 13 feet long, seven feet wide, four feet tall. Wow. Um, I sent them the specs on that tank. They said, you want us to build a top for this? Yeah. Um, so and I think they're going to make it happen. So like there, there are options out there for rimless tanks that can kind of keep that modern aesthetic, kind of keep that real clean look going while keeping our fish in the tank. Because if we're pulling these things out of the wild or if we're bringing them in from captive breeders, whatever, how easy is it to put a top on the tank that when they jump, they're going to bounce back off and go in. So if the whole reason for rimless is to not have a top, I, I can't work with that. I'm sorry. Um, past that, there's a tremendous amount of reasons you might go one way or another. And the first thing that I'm going to look at is the height of your aquarium. If we're talking about a 12 to 21, maybe 24 inch tank, um, rimless is a pretty viable option. As soon as we start getting taller than that, we're going to have to really thicken up the glass because at that point we don't have any bracing on the top to hold the thing together. We're only focusing on how much surface area is the glass in the corners providing. That's our only way to bite. Um, so, you know, a 24 inch rimless tank, it might be three quarters of an inch thick just because mm. it's rimless. Um, mm. that's going to cost twice as much as a half inch thick tank with a rim on the top. Um, so right off the bat, we can cut a lot of costs if we just put uh, some type of trim around it. Um, the trims on a lot of custom aquarium builders are really nice looking now. Um, we do a lot of hybrid tanks from MRC, um, which is actually an acrylic trim. It's a one piece of acrylic. They CNC out uh, the basically little ledges for the glass to sit into. Wow. So it's not just sitting right on top of the glass. It's actually grabbing the glass. So if this is your piece of glass, the acrylic is routed out yeah. and the silicone is squeezed out of there and it grabs onto it. So you have a nice, clean, clear cool. uh, top on that. Um, our planet aquarium tanks, especially the bigger ones are going to have a fiberglass reinforced plastic top with steel on top of that powder coated stainless steel. And when they're using those stronger materials, we can really get away from that old thick plastic that we all used to see and occasionally have melt under metal halide. Mm. Um, we're kind of out of that phase nowadays, which is really nice. Um, and then of course we still see some aquariums that are going to have uh, glass bracing on the edges, maybe some down the middle there's so many options we can go through that my recommendation is always going to go for the most robust tank you can fit into your budget. Um, and you know, I'm probably harder pressed to sell rimless tanks if someone isn't hell bent on it nowadays. Um, another reason for that is just the ability to keep it clean. Uh, my experience with kind of pre-built rimless tanks is that oftentimes the water is our mm. lines, maybe only an inch, inch yeah, and a half a below. Lot. If you run a magnet along that and you're not going super slow, you're getting a, a fair amount of water over the edge of that tank every time you clean it. Um, so if we do a rimless tanks, a lot of times we're doing them custom. Um, and I'm going to put that water line. I follow kind of the Japanese style of years back where I might have four to five inches of, oh, of wow. freeboard or, or, or water line hmm. be beneath that. Then you get your vortex running, your Tunzi's running, whatever. You're going to add another inch and a half a wave to that. So you're really only looking at two to two and a half inches um, of space. But then when you're running a magnet around, you don't have to tread super lightly. 
Um, of course, if you have any kind of trim on the aquarium, you can run your waterline a half inch under that trim and probably be fine. Um, so it generally is going to come down to what is the overall install going to look like and how can we provide the most affordable but still robust tank. Um, and, and a lot of times we just say, hey, tank manufacturer, A, uh, tell me what the trim would look like on this. Right. And bring that in. And if that's not going to create any major shadowing issues with our light or any major issues getting in and out of the tank, we just green light it and say, go for it. Um, kind of the beauty of working with some of these really great vendors is they already know we want the best access, uh, the least amount of, of shadowing effect, uh, and they're running all of the numbers. Um, so they're telling me we're liable for this. We're, we're sure that this is going to hold up. Um, and we say, go. Let's talk tank dimensions. You know, if you have a client, a, uh, a residential client and they say to you, I want a... 220 gallon tank or I want a 240 gallon tank but you know you guys have carte blanche in terms of dimensions on this tank and they want it to be like let's say a mixed reef tank that's not going to be in wall um what would you uh what 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 dimension you know length width height would would you um recommend going as big as possible on a tank like that it's a great question, and there's kind of two routes that I take on it. Um, the first route is, is it a hobbyist or is the client taking care of it themselves? Um, and that is due to the fact that we want to build the tank that's going to be the system that's going to be the easiest to maintain. Sorry, I got a dog playing with my cord over here. Um, <laughs> no worries. I had a puppy jump up on my lap uh, a couple of months ago, so. Oh, great. great. Yeah, I got to love Um because life support system filtration design or access to your aquarium getting in and out regularly, the easier it is, the more often we're going to do it, um, the better we're going to keep up with it. If we're working with something that only has 12 inches of space above the tank to get into, and I've seen that on 1,000-gallon tanks, it's a freaking nightmare to maintain and things are going to slack. So generally, I want to meet the client or Zoom with them or talk to them, and I'll actually ask them, how tall are you? Um, take a tape measure and measure from, you know, stick it under your foot, measure up to your armpit, because at that point you can walk up to your tank and you can put your whole arm in it without a step stool or anything like that. I know that sounds goofy to some people, but since most of our stuff is custom anyways, it's a really good way to make accessible tanks. Um, the other thing that we can go for is if it's a client who's like, I just want something beautiful and you guys are taking care of it. Right. Uh, my maintenance guys sometimes really hate me for it, but I'll say, you know, a 36 inch tall tank would look spectacular in this room. Um, mm. but we get paid for that and we have, you know, a few tricks and methods to our madness that make it easier to get in and out of, but for your everyday reef keeper, height wise, 20 to 24 inches is kind of your sweet spot. Um, some people like going shallower than that and get that kind of like lagoonal look, um, which can look super cool, but of course you're missing a fair amount of your viewable space, you're getting a better top-down view more often than not in that type of tank. Um, so for, you know, an average 180, 240, so your average 180 is what, like six by two by two? Um, that's a pretty good size, you know, and we're going to play with that a lot. If someone comes to me and wants that, I'll try to push them into a 72-inch long by 30 to 36-inch wide, by 24 inch tall, um, you know, the wider front to back you can go, the, the better uh, aesthetics you're going to get long term. You can really let your corals stretch. You can get better flow patterns going. 
Um, we don't put any rock um, on the back wall. I want at least six inches between the back wall and the back of my rock, maybe more, um, because then you can get scraper blades yeah. back there. You get to your sand bed, you can get everything done. Uh, I've had well more than one client scoff at me when they saw their finished aquascape because it's so boring, um, you know, but we let the corals do the scape. We do really basic aquascapes and then we plan the corals based on growing into these open spaces. Um, so when a tank is matured, you know, it might look like there's a lot of rock in there, but three quarters of it is actually just coral that's grown into the space. With pretty minimal rock. That one pound per gallon thing is... Yeah, well, I mean, you and I are on the same page because um, a lot of folks that are watching um, know that I, I just put in a new peninsula tank, and it's 72 inches long by 36 inches wide by 20 inches tall, and I am just really digging the 36 inches wide. I've always had, you know, tanks that have been 30 inches wide and, and 24 inches tall. One was five foot long and the other was six foot long, but I just really, really love the 36 inch wide peninsula tank, and I, I say to people like, Go as wide as possible just because of the aquascaping. And with the aquascaping, I like the minimalistic look. So in this 225-gallon tank, I've only got 100 pounds of the uh, yeah. live rock. And we were talking about this on, on a couple of past uh, live streams that, um, you know, I don't really think you need to spend a lot of time on the aquascaping because let the coral, eventually, if you do it right, the corals are going to grow in and block the aquascape anyway. Yes, you need to take into account in terms of, um, you know, allowing the corals to grow in and, and the current going through, you know, the uh, the minimal uh, aquascapes is certainly important. But I, I, I do believe that um, the whole, uh, you know, two pounds per gallon thing is definitely um, gone by the wayside. And, and, you know, it's it's cool to see what people are doing these days in terms of those uh, minimalistic uh, aquascapes. But I also think you don't have to spend a ton of time on them. Sure, sure. Yeah, some of those bonsai scapes that come out, I mean, they're... They're unbelievable, really. And it's, it's you know, if you would have showed that to the industry 10 years ago, and a couple people did, uh, it's just people's minds were blown, right? And and your your corals are afforded more space to grow. You've got the flow. You've got access to your tank. Um, especially if you're playing with any SPS. I don't like building the aquascape much higher than a third of the height of the mm -hmm. tank. So if the tank's 30 inches tall, you know, 10, 12 inches is the tallest rock that I'm going to put in that tank. Um, because you put a green slimer on top of that or something it's going to hit the water surface in 12 to 18 months if you play your cards right um we actually have certain places in the aquascape of the tenji reef that i went back and forth with a coworker, and i was like i look a little tall man you know but uh he was really excited said, let's let it ride let's let it ride and about six months ago he came to me and he says i think that's a little tall said, okay okay we've been running out for two and a half three years now let's Let's let it do its thing, and then we'll readdress it when the time comes. Um, but it's easy to get carried away early on. We're all going to get super excited, super stoked when we have a new tank to play with, and the rock's the only thing in there. I get it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but don't lose sleep over it because at the end of the day, your corals are going to be what shapes the tank. And if you're doing it right, you shouldn't see any rock after a year and a half to two years in a reef tank. You know, you should just see chock full of coral. Um, one, one thing, uh, one more thing about that. I want to thank, uh, Larry and Nira Nat for the super chat. Really appreciate that. Um, sand bed or, uh, bare bottom. Oof. Oof. You can be successful either way. hundred percent guarantee you that you can absolutely be successful. So I generally tend to lean on whatever the client wants. Um, <clears throat> for our residential builds, we are generally working with non hobbyists. We are working with people who are interested in aquariums. They want something beautiful and living in their home. 
Um, if we set up a bare bottom aquarium in there, they would look at me like I'm smoking something funky. Um, you know, it's not necessarily uh, a really mm, sought after thing outside of the hobby. Um, I my last personal tank was bare bottom. Um, I love it. I really love it. I paint the bottoms black. Hmm. So I paint the bottoms black from the underside. <clears throat> if it's a glass bottom, I'll flip it over or put it on dollies and get to various access points, paint it black. So when you're looking through the front or the top of the tank, um, you actually see a black bottom. Yes, that did mean that I scraped the bottom of my tank. Um, if you keep up with it, it's really not that big of a deal, especially if you're keeping nutrients low. Um, I mean, I think I was in there doing, I could do it in about 15 minutes every two weeks. Um, you know, and I would do it along with the water change, really not that big of a deal. Um, the very last picture in that video, Keith, was my last personal reef tank that I had set yeah. up. And we look at the black bottom in there. I don't think I've set up a bare bottom reef outside of a quarantine system in quite some time, um, just because a lot of people are really enjoying that substrate. Look, um, I'm a pretty avid diver. And very, very, very rarely when you're diving a live reef, do you see substrate because you're looking at a reef wall. Um, it might be only 20 feet high, it might be 200 feet high before you're going to see the sand. So, you know, the whole, this coral does better on sand bed type thing. There, there, there's some truth to that, but I don't buy a lot of it. I've seen Walsophilia is up on a rock ridge that, you know, is 40 feet from any sand. Um, so I think things can be successful in various areas. You'll talk to some of your wrasse lovers that like, oh, I have to have sand which is generally beneficial for wrasses. Um, is it 100% always? No. Um, there's also lots of different ways you can supplement that sand in a bare bottom tank. Is something as simple as a little Tupperware dish, right. three, four inches tall, throw sand in there, hide it behind your rock work. They'll find it. They'll use yeah, it. Yeah, I've seen somebody do uh, that. Yeah, if we have really temperamental wrasses, coyote, lenardis in quarantine, anything like that, um, that's what I do. Uh, I'll, I'll just dip that in there. You know, those fish aren't cheap, and they are very, very picky. Um, so we will try to implement some something like that for them, and uh, that works well. And then when we're done, I can pull it out. I can bleach it and get on with my life. Um, we're If we are running sand beds, we're really big on thin sand beds. Um, inch to two inches uh, is about what we're working with. Um, deep sand bed... Um, there is some really fantastic things that happen in a deep sand bed. They absolutely have a lifespan. Um, you know, we have to think of our sand in our rock in aquariums like a sponge. It is a sponge. And it's going to absorb uh, nutrients out of the water column. Um, but it can only do that for so long. Um, so over time, if we're dealing with a deep sand bed, it's going to absorb so many nutrients that one day we're going to start seeing some funky things with our nitrates, with our phosphates. Yeah. Some yeah. people will claim that it's re-releasing into the water column. Maybe that's happening, but really what's certainly happening is it's full. It's a full sponge and it cannot absorb any more of these nutrients out of the water column. With a shallow sand bed, you can go in there and suck out 50 to heck 100% of the sand and exchange it for new sand, assuming you've prepped it uh, appropriately, in one or two foul swoops and you're back off and running. With a deep sand bed, you can really devastate a system by doing that. So there are methods to doing it. Feel free to contact me if you want a little write-up on that. Happy to provide it. More than we want to talk about now. But if you're starting up a new reef, I do not recommend deep sand beds. Um, there are too many new and uh, more efficient ways to not have to worry about that dreaded day. Um, Joey Ayulo um, calls it um, Lars or lazy ass reefer syndrome. Um, it's kind of his term for old tank syndrome that we see. 
Um, and I'm a firm believer in everything Joe says on that. And I've seen a lot of it in person myself. Um, you know, if, if we just kind of get into this groove of letting things happen naturally, well, nothing's natural about what we're doing. We're keeping animals that are in a big environment in the ocean, putting them in a little box in our home. Um, and we're going to claim natural everything. It, it, no, it's, it's, it doesn't work. Um, you know, there are certain things that will work, certain things that you can hit a little bit harder with the natural approaches. Um, but long-term you're going to get bit trying to do something like that. Um, and I'm not saying throw a bunch of chemicals into your tank. Salt water is a chemical, but you know, it's, uh, it's a function of making sure that we're getting to the goal we're wanting to achieve in the most efficient way possible. That's safest for the animals. And nowadays I don't believe deep sand bed is that way. There are specific animals that will want it though. Like your garden eels and things of that nature right. sometimes you can't avoid it but if you can't avoid it um one to two inch sand bed will do you well hey great bearded reef thanks for joining us and thanks for that super chat it said uh damn nap got me this week laugh out loud all right well glad you made it <laughs> um follow-up question for you there uh, austin in terms of the sand bed do you think mm -hmm. that it has to be maintained i mean you mentioned that uh you know in a, in a couple of sessions you can kind of swap it out if you do it the right way and, and prepare the sand bed but um um if you have a proper cleanup crew can you mm -hmm. let them do the work and over time are you at, or, or at at risk of um you know potentially having something go wrong with that sand bed over time if you don't physically tend to it yourself I think you're at risk. Um, you know, our protocol for our maintenance team is to always clean the sand bed. There's a couple ways that we do that. Um, one way is your gravel vac. Gravel vacs are great. You know, we're doing our water changes with a gravel vac. We're literally seeing the detritus and waste come up out of the substrate. It's never releasing into our water column. Um, that's especially true if you have an older system that you're trying to get into shape use a gravel vac, clean that substrate, unless you're just going to siphon out the substrate, replace it with new. Don't try to stir that old substrate because you can create wreaks of havoc by doing that. If it's a new system, we're really big on this kind of, the way we build sumps now, you can turn a couple of valves and do a water change without using any tubing, without using gravel vacs. The water goes into the tank and displaces old water down a drain. It's fantastic. Our maintenance guys love it. I love it. Our clients we build it for that do their own maintenance really love it. So in that case, if it's a new system from the beginning, I just recommend stirring the substrate once a week to every two weeks. Something as simple as a big algae scraper getting down in there, letting that detritus come up into the water column, go into your overflow and get caught in your filter socks. Then after that, change your filter socks within a day or two. Um, it's a really efficient way of getting that stuff out of there. Cleanup crews are phenomenal and they're going to help stir up our sand bed. They're going to go through and eat crap, waste, excess food, you name it. Um, but, you know, nothing just evaporates out of the sand bed or out of our water. So if cleanup crew is eating, they're also excreting waste. Right. So the energy is still going somewhere. And we'll see some of that energy in our snails and our crabs as they grow. Um, great. Then that waste is being used to cause them to grow. But they're still excreting waste. So that's also part of that like natural methodologies that I hear a lot about. Oh, I don't want to do any of that because it's not a natural method. Well, you know, we still need to get that waste out of there. So if you have 200 fish or 200 giant hermit crabs, um, you still got to clean that substrate and, and keep it clean. You could maybe push it longer than what I'm saying, you know, one to two weeks. 
my job is to help our guys and our clients be as successful as possible. So if we're having issues with algae, if we're having issues with corals starting to go downhill or anything like that, we're already not doing our job. Right. So we're always going to be prophylactic. I'm going to be as far ahead of the game as possible. And it's not unusual for a client or one of my coworkers to look at me like, I just did a 40-gallon water change. I'm not doing another 40-gallon water. I said, if you're testing nitrates or phosphates out of range or alkalinity or calcium, high or low or whatever, then we're already behind. It's so easy in this aquarium world to just always stay ahead of the game. And, and it might seem like more work, but it's not because you're never trying to chase something. You're never trying to get back in line. Just stay ahead of it. Um, so we're really big on getting people on a consistent routine, whether that's a weekly water change, biweekly, and at the same time, do your gravel vac or do your swirl of the substrate, change your socks, do all of that. Um, and we just stay ahead of the game. And then before you know it, you have to prune your coral. Like it's, we're no longer in an era that's like, oh my gosh, how do I get this coral to grow? Like if you follow a pretty straightforward recipe and have quality equipment, you're going to be fragging corals before you, before you know. What, um, what do you guys uh, kind of see as the red line there in terms of nitrates and phosphates in a tank? You know, if it gets above a certain, you know, level in terms of nitrates and phosphates, you guys, ah, well, maybe we're, uh, we need to, um, you know, up the water changes or, or um, you know, do something to address the, uh, the higher levels. What, what would you say for nitrates and phosphates? Depends who you talk to around here. Um, <laughs> we have a pretty good guideline, though, and... You know, we base everything we do in the best science available at the time. So the red field ratio is 16 to 1. So for every, um, you know, one part of phosphate, you have 16 parts of nitrate. Um, so, I mean, if, if your phosphates are at 1.0 part per million, um, we're going to want to see nitrates around 20, you know, or 16 part per million, if you can measure that accurately. Um, generally speaking, in a reef tank, we're going we're gonna to shoot for a little bit lower phosphate, maybe 0 0.05 part per million. You see 0.03 a lot. Um, a lot of the things we're using to measure as hobbyists won't decipher between those two points. So 0.05 uh, phosphates and roughly 10 nitrates somewhere in there um, is a pretty good range um, that we find most animals seem to do really well on. However, there's always that unique tank that wants a little more nitrates yeah. or a little less nitrates for whatever reason. And I've been doing this professionally eight 18, 19 years now. Woo. Um, got the gray in the beard to prove Time it. Flies. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's absolutely something to be said about every tank is different. And, um, like I said, we have two nice reef tanks at the office and they, and they're four feet from each other. They have the same substrate rock from the same shipment, similar ish animals. One's more SPS heavy. One's more LPS softy heavy. Um, and they like, you know, different things, even if we're trying to run them with the same animals, the same corals for a while, we kind of were just a different scape and the same parameters didn't necessarily work for whatever reason, um, different lights, different pumps, you know, maybe that played into it, but generally speaking, I find 0.05 phosphate and 10 nitrates, a pretty good level, um, nowadays it's amazing how easy it is to strip nutrients out of yeah. the water, um, you know, circa 2002, 2003, and before, uh, you know, we, we couldn't get these, you couldn't dream of having zero phosphates yeah. and nitrates. Um, nowadays, you can strip a system and starve your corals and everything else in the tank pretty easily. Um, so, you know, make, make sure you, you're feeding your animals enough. I think we're out of that era of, you know, only feed once a week or whatever, make the animals do the work. Um, you know, I feed the reef tanks at our office when I'm around four or five times a day. 
Um, you know, not not a ton of food, but most of these animals are grazers in nature. Um, so especially if you're having territorial issues with your fish, set up an auto feeder, feed them more. Um, you know, it's easy enough for us to tune our skimmer to skim a little heavier or do a little bit bigger water change. Um, there's that misnomer that reefs are low nutrients. Reefs are not low nutrients. They have a very fast nutrient cycle. So you will have a, a big bloom of phytoplankton or zooplankton come into a reef and it will be like a freaking storm of food and copepods and all kinds of things that come in uh, on the reef. And if you took that measurement, you might measure really high levels of parameters that you didn't think corals could live in, but it gets flushed out when the tides change right. or when the current picks up. Um, we don't have that ability in our tanks unless we're doing like daily water changes, which some people do, but... Um, you know, so it's a function of, of feed have or feed uh, a little bit frequently um, and, and try to create that natural movement and let your animals graze. So, Austin, I'm going to have I got one more substrate question for you, and then I think we'll we'll wrap it up because I don't want to keep you uh, too long today. And uh, again, I just really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join us on the live stream here. This has been awesome. Absolutely. I, I think we're going to have to have you come back because I, I about 50% of my questions, uh, I, I still uh, <laughs> got a whole bunch of stuff to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. So my last question in terms of substrate. So, you know, with my peninsula tank, I went bare bottom because I wanted it to be SPS dominant. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's six foot long. So what um, there's there's challenges that I've learned with a peninsula tank in terms of creating the proper flow and to be able to hide the uh, recirculating pumps or the plumbing, what have you, in that peninsula tank. What do you guys um, recommend or try to steer clients that want to have a, like an SPS dominant or, or a reef tank, you know, with a peninsula reef tank, in terms of keeping it, um, you know, uh, clean, right, in terms of the, uh, the circulation in that tank? It is, right now I have two MP60s and two MP40s on the back panel of the Peninsula tank. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's why it's bare bottom, because it would be a, uh, a sandstorm, I believe, if I had sand in that tank. But, you know, I, it, it is a clean look, and I think I do have enough flow in that Peninsula tank. But what do you guys, um, you know, that, that's a challenge for Peninsula tank in terms of flow. Just kind of curious sure. in terms of what you guys, um, you know, do on that front. Um couple different things to do. So if it's a super high flow aquarium, when someone is hellbent on substrate, we'll actually use like calcium reactor media. Oh. Uh, you can use calcium reactor media. It's a really large grain. Yep. Um, even if it rolls around, it can't go too far. Um, and then if you wanted some smaller stuff in there, you can sprinkle crushed coral in between that. Um, a lot of these bigger grain substrates get a bad rep for no reason. Um, you know, you can talk about microfauna, this, that, and a bag of chips, and I can debunk all of it pretty quickly. Um, it's going to grow in your rocks. It's going to grow in the sand bed. Um, if you're cleaning the substrate, you can use the bigger stuff like that. And in a super high flow tank, it's probably cleaning itself, um, you know, coupled with a little stir here and there. So that's one way to still have substrate in a really high flow tank. Use bigger stuff. Um, as far as specific types of pumps or manners of getting flow through a system like that, um, what you just explained, I first saw done by Steve Herlock. Um, he's unfortunately passed since, but he had a phenomenal aquarium in Colorado. Um, and he was the first person I saw use, I think Jake Adams did a, a, a nice write-up on that. You can probably still find it on Reef Builders or just search Mile High Reef or Steve Herlock, H-U-R-L-O-C-K yep. Reef. 
Um, at one point, he had like 16 MP40s on the short side by his <laughs> overflow. But that tank was like 12 feet long. Oh, like wow. It was a really big tank. So he had like six stacked on top of one side of the overflow, then six over here. And they would alternate pulsing. So one side would pulse and the other side would pulse. And you'd see the anemones 12 feet away do this wow. and then do that. Wow. Uh, so I think what you're doing is a phenomenal way to do it. Um, I really like some of the flow patterns. You can get shooting really far with um, gyre style pumps. Yeah. Um, not so big on the longevity of some of those pumps. Um, we've started playing with a lot more hydro wizards uh, lately, which is made by a company named Pantaray. Um, they are a, a little bit more pricey pump, but if you want to shoot water far, holy crap, man, you can you can get water rocking with those things. Um, and that would be the main difference between like a Tunzi style or Hydro Wizard pump compared to a Vortex. Vortex, you know, tend to be more broad flow, um, which in a peninsula maybe what you want, maybe not what you want. Where the Tunzi style or Hydro Wizards are going to be uh, more of a like a barrel that goes down the tank. Right. Um, so if you feel that on the far end of the tank, you know, those vortex aren't cutting it, I would look into, uh, on top of the vortex, a more barrel style flow from a Tunzi um, or a Pantaray type pump. Um, uh, Abyss makes phenomenal yep. power heads too. Um, they're currently a little big for your size tank, um, you know, but uh, there are some options for that. A couple times I've built uh, an overflow that goes the entire short side of the peninsula that hugs the wall. Yep. Um, and then if you look at the overflow from a top-down perspective, this I put, I divide it. So a portion of the center is your standard overflow with your drain pipes and your supply pipes coming back through in that standard section. Then the ends either have a closed loop inside of them or maybe a wave box stuck inside or maybe Tunzi's shoved down in there and pointed to, to fire across the tank. That gets you kind of the most aesthetically pleasing look to hide pumps or cords and that kind of things. Um, I've also retrofitted that in an existing overflow. That's not fun, but it can mm. be done. Most most of us, especially hobbyists, don't mind the look of your MP40s, your MP60s, yeah. a pump here and there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you were to call me and you didn't have pumps in your tank and you showed me a picture of your tank, I'd start with what you have. Right. Honestly. Yeah. Uh, particularly because in my experience, the Vortec line of pumps are, especially nowadays, they're so easy to take care of. Yep. Uh, historically have been really easy to get. I know Corona's had some challenges for Ecotech, but they seem to be getting back online. Um, and their customer support has always just been stellar for us. Um, everyone's going to have their hiccups from time to time, but they they seem to really come through. Um, and for for what it's worth, in, in my book, if you make the best equipment in the world and your follow-up support sucks, it's useless, yep. you know. And there's a couple distributors that, unfortunately, I don't sell anything from them anymore. And I'm friends with some of them, but, you know, I might be friends with the salesman and not the customer support side or, or whatever, um, and you know, it, it, if your stuff can't last and we can't get help, then it, it doesn't matter how good or how affordable yep, it yep. is. Um, we need that follow-up support. All right. One last question. I promise. Sure. Um, no, no, man, I'm just hanging out. <laughs> it's early for me still. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, now people are going to start ragging on me for, for me ending the stream because my guest is willing to stay on, but, uh, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. You know, I'm always respectful sure, of the, uh, sure. the guest time, but, uh, closed loops, they scare the hell out of me. Do you guys, uh, sure. 
is that something that you're comfortable with in terms of, I just don't like to have bulkheads on the bottom of the tank or below the water line. And, you know, I know in a peninsula tank, a closed loop can certainly, um, you know, be a clean, smart way to, you know, increase flow on the other side of the tank, but it just worries me. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. It worries you. Right. Um, uh, talking about my buddy, Joe, again, he, he has a big thing. He'll never put a close. He'll never put a bulkhead through the bottom of a tank anymore. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. there's 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 ways to do closed loops through the back wall of the tank, like in your tank, for example. If you really wanted to, you could put everything, your inlets, your outlets, in that back wall. So God forbid you did have an issue with them. It's only going to drain down to a certain point. Um, you know, we've had to do some really interesting retrofit or fixes where. Uh, thankfully the closed loop is coming through the sidewall and we'll have to drain down the tank 75%. We'll have two guys sitting there with spray bottles of salt water or a little pump on a maxi jet spraying down the coral when we're working as fast as we can on the outside of the tank, replacing the bulkhead, excuse me, replumbing it and so forth. Um, with that said, that cylinder tank I mentioned earlier that we did locally has them going through the bottom. It's a cylinder tank. Um, there is no back wall. Um, you know, the client, um, one of the things that we talk with them a lot is you're not going to know that there's any equipment in this tank. Um, and I had faux stones made around the outlets and inlets for, um, the bulkheads and the fittings attached to the bulkheads so that you, you can't tell that there's bulkheads there. Uh, it just looks like a rock. Um, you know, and, and man, yeah, if, if those go bad, we're going to have a very busy day ahead of us. Um, but you know, we, we have the means and, and manpower to get four guys over there with brute cans, um, with, you know, pumps and nets to, to move animals around. And we have the ability to, to fix something like that in one day without much trouble if necessary. Is it going to be a fun day? Hell no. Uh, you know, but, but we can do it. If I'm a home hobbyist, I'm going to be really hard pressed to put a closed loop through the bottom of my tank. Um, especially considering how great the pumps are now, like the Vortex, right. like the Tunzies. Right. Um, you know, I mean, y you're going to have a hard time creating a closed loop system that's going to provide better flow than those. Right. Um, so the closed loops that we do still install are going to be in those awkward installations like that cylinder tank um, or really big tanks. You know, if, if I need eight MP60s to get enough flow in a tank, not going to use them. Um, yeah. you know, we can yeah. use an abyss pump, um, or even a Vectra, um, Ecotech Vectra, and they, they will ramp up and down just like a Vortec would. You can create some really gnarly flow patterns with that. Um, actually that closed loop on the cylinder tank is using two abyss A200s. Um, and we can get the tank to pulse and spin around one way for, for five minutes or 20 minutes and then reverse it with the other pump. And the whole time it's actually pulsing as it's going around. Yeah, cool. Um, cool. So, you know, if unless you're in a funky situation, um, we kind of steer clear of closed loops nowadays. Yeah. Now, I uh, they scare the crap out of me personally. But uh, yeah, sure. uh, interesting. So, uh, Austin, any uh, any final words before we uh, sign off here? Um. Final words. Well, thank you so much again for having me on, Keith. It's been a lot of fun. Um, be happy to come back on. Uh, as you can tell, I can probably talk about this stuff all day and then some. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it is my job. Uh, if people have any questions, of course, I will go back and um, look at the chat here. And um, you can find find me through Tenji or you can hit us up. We're always happy to, to talk to people, even if we're not going to get work out of it. Um, 
you know, if work does come out of it, it's not free. <laughs> we do this for a living, but we really enjoy it and we will never steer you wrong. Um, advice to hobbyists is keep up with your work. You know, it's these, these, when we purchase an animal, the entire, their entire life is now in our hands. We cannot blame a pump manufacturer. We cannot blame a heater manufacturer. We should have redundant systems in play and we should have an extra pumper heater on the shelf. Um, you know, especially with Corona woes or, or shipping woes or our friends in Texas that can't get anything shipped right now. Um, if you're prepped for the worst, um, you can't go wrong. Have a generator, have the backups, um, and treat these animals like you would a dog or a cat. And they will reward you with years and years and years of, of just enjoyment. Um, and you can provide a better home for them than they could have on the reef. So keep up with your maintenance and be prepared. Awesome advice. Well, Austin, man, thank you again so much for being part of the, uh, the live stream. We, uh, we really appreciate it. On behalf of the viewers, want to thank you so much. Of course. Of course. So, Anytime. Man. So um, my next live stream is next Thursday, Feb, uh, February 25th. And another great guest, Matt Peterson from Coral Magazine is going to be on. It's, this is going to be a little later. Usually uh, we're on at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but uh, we're going to do this one at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So it's going to be a late night for me, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Anyway, uh, folks, thanks again for, uh, for tuning in and be safe, be well, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.